Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscribers, Vicky and Sam, for their support as well as all my other Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to learn more about conductors and conducting, gain access to exclusive companion mini-episodes, articles, group Zoom meetings, two brand new series of interviews, or even conducting lessons from myself, head over to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, where you'll find six different levels of subscription starting at just £5 a month. Details are in the show notes below, and it would be great to welcome more of you over on Patreon at the Mike on the Podium Supporters Club. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor who's equally at home on the concert platform and in the opera house. He's been music director with three different opera companies in the UK, as well as having title positions with symphony orchestras in Australia, France and Spain over a long and distinguished career. It's a very great pleasure to welcome Paul Daniel. Paul, it is lovely to see you and speak to you today. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you very much. I must say I'm feeling okay. I'm in a rather strange situation. I'm in France. At the moment we're speaking from across the border. I'm uh, self-isolating for seven days. I've actually got a concert next week, can you believe? (laughs) But that means I have to travel from the UK and I have to sit in splendid isolation for seven days before I get a PCR test and then I can get on the podium. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's good for you and it's good that you're working. Uh, It's also good for me because... Like many conductors, uh, I mean, I spoke to Simone Young, who was cooped up in a Sydney hotel room, and you're cooped up in France, and many of the conductors, I'm getting them, were in their time of obligatory two weeks isolation. Um, so that's good. Um, I'm going to go right back to the beginning, and uh, in in doing my homework, I discovered something I didn't know about you, which is you're a Brummie. You were born in Birmingham. Um, so how did oh, music... Yes. How I'm did music, <laughs> Good, yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, I married a Brummie and I've lived here for well over half my life, so I think I count as a Brummie now and also proud of it. How did music first come into your life? Well, it was thanks to Birmingham schools. Actually, it wasn't Birmingham, it was Sutton Coalfield by then because we moved out of, out of Birmingham. We were in Sutton Coalfield and it was the local infant school, which I turned up to on my first day. On probably the second day, aged, I don't know what, five, four and a half, whatever we were then, uh, I was marched into a room and given a recorder to play. And that's the one wonderful state of things back then. You know, I mean, I know we can all look back with very, very wistfully to those days, but local authority music was fantastic. And thanks to the music teacher in the school, she was one of the teachers in the infant school. Her name was Doreen Ogden, and she deserves to be a saint. You know, she she made all of us, every single pupil, play an instrument in the school. And those that took to it, she took to them, and she had us all in at 8:30 every morning before school, half an hour every single day doing making music. Brilliant. Uh, I would never have known because my parents uh, they loved music. They were not musicians themselves, uh, they wouldn't have any idea how to start me on that path, and she did. So thank thank her, thank her. She was a wonderful woman. Well, in the same class, actually, was a very, very dear friend of mine, someone called Joy Farrell, who's um, the great clarinet players, bass clarinet players as well, and married the wrong Daniel. She, married, she and I were determined to get married when we were six years old. Um, and then she went to Australia and I was heartbroken. And then she came back and she ended up marrying Nick Daniel. 
Yes, the oboist. <laughs> who, oboist and conductor who's appeared on this podcast. Yes, that's right. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, 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 was, that was the start, yeah. yeah. And then from there, I, we moved again. I ended up in just outside Coventry. And uh, again, first day in the junior school, marched into the hall, told to sing, invited to join the choir of the cathedral. Mm. A fantastic musical establishment in the cathedral it was a new place i wasn't yeah. there at the beginning but very near the beginning it was had a really dynamic sense of you know what what music could be in a cathedral atmosphere we we rehearsed every day before school again we would be performing all weekend on tuesday morning or monday morning there'd be a new piece of music probably a premiere that we were doing by Maxwell Davis or someone put in front of us we'd learn it and by Saturday we were performing it you know and that sense of just turning up turning on the, all the, the effort to get to get a piece of music performed and ready stayed with me all through my uh, obviously all through my adult life as well it was a wonderful atmosphere and the theory training that we got Yes, the tonic sulfur training, the rhythmical training. It was like learning to ski when you're three, probably. You don't even, don't even realize what you're doing. And, you yeah. know, I remember being asked, you know, how do you know that's a perfect fifth? And how do you know that's an augmented fourth by someone who didn't understand what, how I'd learned? And I said, do you know, I have no idea. <laughs> to me, it's just like, how do you know that's a letter I or a capital S? Well, I have no idea. I just know it. That's what it is. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was like... It, it was an amazing experience that you know all gratitude to that because without that i don't know whether i'd have known that i was a musician mm. before we leave coventry and go to cambridge uh, i just want to talk <laughs> briefly about that amazing space coventry cathedral um i've been lucky enough to play in there on a two or three occasions two of them at least playing the wall requiem in there have you conducted in there much i mean having obviously sung in there every week of your life for four five six years well yeah exactly and just being a chorister there you know the all the great orchestras of of the region came frequently in those days to play in the cathedral the cbso of course the halle uh, the BBC Northern, as it was in those days, the London Orchestras, the Berlin Philharmonic came with Baron Boy, Marion oh, wow. Giulini came with Jacqueline Dupre, I think, playing. I got my autograph book out each time. We were sat on the front row for every one of those concerts, so starting, you know, age seven. Yeah. And I, I again, what an amazing gift. I, I watched so many great performances. I remember watching Arvid Janssons, Maris's father, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. he was an amazing influence on, on, on me and on just generally his orchestral conducting, amazing fluency. I remember watching his arm thinking, ah, that's how you do it. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I, my, I think my, the dream to be a conductor one day came from watching people like him when I didn't have any idea really what, what, what it was about, but I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be able to draw sound mm. <laughs> the way they were doing. That's yeah. it, was, it was like a little dream. But um, yeah, I have conducted there since. Actually, on the 50th anniversary of the cathedral, probably when you played one of the war requiems uh, the following week, I think there was a, a festival to celebrate the 50th anniversary. 
and we brought the piece that was by Arthur Bliss that had been written for the consecration, but never played inside the cathedral. It was actually moved out to the theatre down the road because Britain had realised the enormity of the task of getting the war equipment on and it had told them that it wasn't going to happen at all unless he had an extra week or whatever it was, you know, to have to, to be able to put the whole thing together in the cathedral. So the concept with the Bliss piece, which was written specially for the, again, for the consecration, was moved down the road. And in 2012, we brought it back into the cathedral and I conducted it with the BBC film. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I was playing in that performance of the War Requiem, probably in 2012. It, yeah, it must have been the one with Andrus Nelsons. And mm. uh, we played it at the, for those of you who know Coventry Cathedral, we played it at the window end um, rather than at the other end of the cathedral, where I think the world premiere, with the, again with the CBSO, fifty years before happened, um, mm. uh, it's an amazing experience. <laughs> I was, I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about ass assisting and, and the sort of roles we have as conductors. Uh, I was playing in the second violins, which was my job for twenty-two years, and Andrus did the normal thing with going, "Hey, Mike, uh, go and listen." And so I had to go out and listen <laughs> and, uh, and give him notes on the balance in Coventry Cathedral, which you know, talk about poison chalice. Uh, it wasn't particularly easy. Um, it was one of those occasions, I think, where I said, "Look, if you really want to know what it's like, I'll conduct, and you go out and listen." Um, it, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a tricky place, um, but it's a wonderful space because of. The history going back to the war requiem and obviously beyond I, I did i did actually i did sing in the uh, perform we used to perform it maybe once every three or four years and i remember sitting right at the back hidden around the back with the boys choir yeah being bored out of my mind the first time <laughs> this is going on forever and ever and ever and ever you know and i had no idea what i was doing <laughs> and then i got a little prize one year from the choir i got a, a a full score of the war requiem given to me as, as my prize. And my father got it bound in a leather binding. He was very proud of it and proud of what I'd done. And every time I conduct the war requiem, I use that score. So it's direct contact back to that those days, you know. Oh, that's wonderful. 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 <laughs> Uh, so, as I said, on to King's, studying music, King's College, Cambridge. Um, and I'm assuming you carried on singing because they've got a, a choir there, haven't they? But by now, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> by now you were also um, quite a pianist. I think I saw on an interview you were playing the piano a lot. And, and by now, although you'd been watching these people from the front row of the audience in Coventry and the scene had been sown about conducting, had you done much by now? Or uh, if so, what? Not at all. Right. Absolutely not at all. I wasn't ready really for Cambridge. Not, I'm not in terms of the essays and all the academic stuff, but for, the, for this wonderful playground that the university is for, for mm. making music. You know, as you say, I was very lucky to be able to play the piano quite well. And I took that very seriously when I was there. So I was able to do lots of chamber music and we had a lot of good times. I remember playing playing my way through some of the Beethoven kind of concertos with an orchestra in the hall, uh, two or three years running. But conducting, I watched all these boys, students turn up, wonderful talents, you know, and just get on with it the day they started. And I thought, how do I do that? 
probably my closest friend when I was there. We were there contemporary uh, to each other, and uh, we shared a room in our second year with Simon Halsey. Oh, yes. We're, yeah. uh, we're big buddies. Um, and he was, he was set up straight away. He was conducting. He had a lot of conducting experience before he came. He was, he was a fantastic influence, you know, from that point of view. I started really... I'd done a tiny bit before I arrived there. And I, I, I finished my time in Cambridge without really having conducted very much, actually. Mm. And then I went to the Guildhall to, to do a year's conducting there, which was, uh, which was invaluable as a sort of starting stepping stone. Uh, and, and have I read right that you were taught or, or mentored by Sir Adrian Bolt and Sir Edward Downs during that year at the Guildhall? Yes, well, uh, that's... When I went to the ball, I was very enthusiastic and very green, very wet with my behind ears. And they said, OK, you can conduct a symphony in your first, the end of your first term. What do you want to conduct? I said, oh, Elgar 1. I'll do Elgar 1. I knew it <laughs> reasonably well, but which meant not at all. <laughs> yeah. um, and a few weeks before, Simon Raffle turned up to conduct the, the Guildhall Symphony Orchestra. And he was doing Brahms four, and he was also doing the uh, Lulu Suite, the Berg Lulu Suite in mm. his program. Now I was assigned the symphony to be his assistant, and there was another one, of, another of my student colleagues. He was going to do the film, the um, the Lulu Suite. And one day I was sitting in one of the rehearsals. I was the only one of us there, uh, and Simon was rehearsing the Lulu Suite. And he turned around to me and said, "Paul, do you um, do you know the film music?" which is one of the movements, the big palindrome music in the middle. Mm. And I said, oh, yes. <laughs> I didn't have the first idea. So he said, just, just conduct through it for me, would you? So I can listen to the orchestra. Of course, that was his <laughs> very gentle and generous way of letting me have a go. So I stood up and I looked at the score um, and I basically sight read my way through the score. And he was incredibly generous. And he was <laughs> like he always is with young conductors. And after that, we had a cup of tea and he said, you know, Paul, you know, you, that was amazing. You did a really good job. You, you were absolutely clear. He said, you're terribly stiff. You've got to do something about that. You're very, very rigid when you're conducting. You, I'm sure you can do that. But that, that, I said, well, it was the first time I tried that piece. He said, OK. He said, tell me about Elgar 1. And I started to talk about Elgar 1. He said, Paul, you need to know a lot about Elgar 1. You don't know anything yet, do you? And I said, no. <laughs> he said, go to Adrian Bolt. Call him up. This is how you do it. You, he, he won't want any money. He'll just want to be uh, to feel that he's given you something. And it was yeah. the really beginning of a very nice little relationship. You know, I, I used to go to his the, the flat he came to. I think it was a family member of his. His he came up from 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 the country and used to come to the flat in West Hampstead. He was very infirm. He was in a wheelchair. He was. But he was, again, very kind. Mm. And he was so prepared, you know, for this Elgar. I remember he, it was before the new edition was published and he produced this envelope and he pulled out all these papers. And they were the letters from Elgar and the letters from him to Elgar, all the stuff that we now know quite well because it's been published. But then yeah. it wasn't. It was the notes about 
from Elgar to, to he to him, Bolt asking him to try a reduction of the orchestra in a few places in the first movie. You know, those places which he yeah. said, I want it to sound very filigree. Try it with just one desk. And he said, take that away, Paul. You try that when you do yours, your performance and let me know how it goes. So moments like that you treasure forever, you know? Yeah. It was an amazing experience. But thanks to Simon that that that, that, that door opened. And then actually at around the same time, I went to work with Ted Downs on what was a, a, an orchestral course run by the Dutch broadcasting companies in the summer. Mm. And it was a month and you've got two orchestras to play with. And before that, two weeks with pianos and a class of us all actually doing opera. Yeah. So it was it was it was an opera course. And that was an, a great fun. I remember there were, we were, again, we, we were so you know, young and we didn't know what we were doing. We, we were very, very keen. I prepared like hell. I was determined to make a good job of it. And then I remember sitting there with there were probably eight of us. And one guy stood up on the first day to, room to, to conduct the pianos. And he was made to conduct. He looked the part. He was just stylish. He stood there with fantastic gestures and like authority. And I thought, oh my God. Okay. So that's what we we're aiming for. And he did this with great panache and, and flair. And at the end of it, his overture or whatever it was, there was a silence. And Ted said, Daddy. Everybody, laddie, laddie. <laughs> the first thing you need to know is that conducting is not public masturbation. Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful! You didn't like him at all. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of burst the bubble, and uh, I became very, very close to Ted. Actually, he was—he again, fantastic help, and he—he he really helped me. I remember one morning. Uh, getting up very, very early. We were all staying in this Van Bynum Institute, I think it's called. It was this big house, which Van Bynum used to, to own, and it turned into an education place. And we all could stay there, a huge building with beautiful gardens. And Ted was staying there as well. I got up at six in the morning or 5.30 to practice something, you know, to be prepared for the, for the morning thing I was going to be conducting with the orchestra. I went into the library and he, he was already there in his dressing gown, uh, <laughs> sitting in a chair. And I said, oh, morning, Ted. What are you doing up so early? He said, oh, I'm just just learning some Russian. I mean, he spoke such fluent Russian. He was a great specialist. He was just, he said, I'm revising some, some of my verbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, he was almost blind. He, kind, he yeah. could hardly see. Yeah. And he used to look at things through the side of his, of one eye, you know, looking, looking at, he put the, whatever he's looking at right close to his face on one side. You could just see. Mm. And I thought, that's application, huh? You get up at 5.30 every morning to learn some Russian verbs. <laughs> but yeah, again, fantastic help. That was, and, and that, that, in a way, that led partly to me being able to start, it was a bit of a, a, a unlocking a door for me to start at, um, working at the opera, actually. Yes. Which, which came just afterwards at ENO. Yeah. Before we leave Ted Downs, I, I remember playing for him the first time he came to Birmingham and I'd been there a long time and I'd never played for Ted. Of course, I knew his name, but I'd never played for him and didn't really know an awful lot about him. 
nobody told me he was his sight was quite as bad as it was as you've just described you know he the skull would be literally an inch from his his eyes and he would use a um a, a loop a, a watchmaker's tool to look at the score if anybody asked him a question and immediately i was shocked by this but then i thought my god this man must know these scores backwards um because uh, you know he must have spent as you said applications to go mm -hmm. through those scores line by line by line and sort of have to memorize them because he couldn't see them whilst he was stood there actually conducting um and i immediately you know respect poured out of me i thought mm -hmm. my god what a job this guy's has, has has done over his career to just he must just have an incredible memory is that i mean i'm sure that was the case he must have spent hours and hours and hours it's absolutely yeah completely yeah yeah and all those his repertoire is vast you know those yeah. years he spent at the opera and the, all the work he did in manchester the bbc film the bbc Northern. Yeah. i mean yeah fantastic knowledge and insight and understanding and all he, he he wore it so lightly as well he was so funny yeah his yeah. stories my god huh. i can't begin now but the stories he told about going to, to study in vienna the first day he turned up at you know to turn up as a sort of frightened schoolboy in vienna to go and uh to go and study oh his wonderful stories mm. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, that 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 application, that 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 preparation that he he did, and other people, you know, obviously conductors I admire, you know, that hmm. the amount that they know and knew, you know, that that stayed with me, and I've I've always tried, <laughs> with varying degrees of success or failure, to to get to that level, you know, when you study scores, to try to have it as much in your head as possible you know I, mm. I kind of deliberately for years used miniature scores yeah i've done that as well so that i yeah, couldn't yeah. see them in the in the rehearsal mm. you know deliberately they're there in case i need to look but i truly try to to rehearse without having to look at them You've just mentioned that, you know, pretty much straight after being with Ted uh, and the Van Bynum course there, that 1982, you start a five-year stint as a staff conductor at English National Opera. Um, what does that job entail? Um, I'm assuming it's part assisting, it's uh, taking on performances later in the run of, uh, of, a, of an opera, um, the job I got actually was just as a repetiteur, which is a very, very important job, but it was yes. just playing the piano in rehearsals, you know, and to be a conductor, which, you know, there are plenty of conductors sitting in opera companies waiting for the chance. I was very lucky again, but uh, it was just me making a nuisance of myself until someone let me let me have a go. And Mark Elder was the music director and he was tremendously helpful to me, very hard taskmaster. He demanded absolutely incredible amount of knowledge from scores when you when you're playing for him. Mm. I remember we we did a production of Meistersinger, Master Singers, and uh, you'd be in the middle of a score, five hundred page score, and he'd say, um, "Right, let's go from uh, bring me the shoes," which is just a line, you know, from the opera. And do you think, yes, but which time and where and <laughs> where in the next thirty pages does he mean? And, he just expected you to know everything. And he was yeah. right too. But I was a staff conductor for two years, actually, only after, okay. after those five years as a repetitor. But it was, um, yeah, exactly as you say, it's 
spending time in the wings, conducting the offstage chorus, conducting the offstage bands, getting into the library, getting down and dirty with the material, getting everything prepared, doing all of those things as an assistant. And be, then be, when, hopefully when you become a staff conductor, being ready to conduct performances. Yeah. You know, it's, it's learning the hard way. Um, I remember Doc Nani said, you know, he couldn't get a job in an opera house when he started so he got a job as an electrician he just wanted to be there and ready in case anybody asked him to be you know to to, to conduct one day yeah but uh it's it's, it's a fantastic training of course as a conductor because you see so many conductors you see well what i think is one of the most essential things about conducting which is how to deal with people not necessarily yeah. just to deal with the music or to deal with interpretations but to how to deal with people and the people working on an opera musically from the artistic side are under such pressure mm. or, and everybody in slightly different ways you know mm. that of course the orchestra has their own job to do but you stand at the back of a chorus in the wings having conducted them just off stage and then watch them go on stage with the lights blinding them as they as they all rush onto the stage to carry on the singing of the chorus part, you know, in that scene. And the people at the back are having to be meticulously in tempo, at pitch, in exactly the right place and not miss a beat, you know? And mm. then you've, you've stood behind that happening. You never, ever shout at a chorus for not following the beat or for, <laughs> for not being with you when you're in the pit because mm. you think yeah i can see what's going on i've seen it you know i know what that's like it's it's an almost impossible task but you know the your admiration for the last person on in the chorus grows enormously from having been that assistant you know having started as it were right from the back and from the bottom yeah I've been uh, just to go back on one of those tasks. Um, I mean, I agree with you when you, when you when you see people doing what they do uh, from the wings. But one of those tasks, and, and it's barely been touched on in the previous you know sixty episodes or so, is conducting off stage. It's bloody hard, isn't it? It's frightening. It's scary. I mean, I did it a few times for Andreas Nelson's for. Um, for Lohengrin, there's two or three bits in Lohengrin and we're running around the hall finding different places to conduct. It's hard, it's stressful. Um, people think, oh, you just stood backstage in your jeans conducting. It's really tricky. And and it's something I would I would say mm -hmm. to all young conductors, if possible, get a chance. Don't turn around and say, oh, I'm only conducting off stage. Go and do it. It's tough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the camera is always just slightly behind the beat and the pitch that you hear of the orchestra from the, through the loudspeakers or from from the pit, it's great for the house. But by the time your pitch, the pitch that the your band is playing at, goes through all the scenery and through all that space, it's going to be flat. So you're playing slightly sharp. You're you're playing slightly ahead of the beat, and mm. you as the as the offstage conductor try to keep everybody calm at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and in the thirty seconds you've got between between attempt number one and attempt number two, you, you try and rehearse as well. You try and get them to play it better. Mm. It's, it's an amazing training. That and being a chorus master, I think yes. those two things, if you, if, you want to be an, if you want to be an orchestra conductor, you're going to have to learn how to conduct backstage and how to, how to deal with choruses. Um, I mean, people and dealing with people is going to come up again very soon. But going back to um, just one little story from my time conducting off stage, we did a performance of Lohengrin 
on a Saturday, a, a concert performance mm. with the CBSO. And England's first game in the World Cup um, was happening at the same time. So they put the interval, uh, the, an hour's interval, in the middle of Lohengrin so that, you know, the audience or the orchestra or anybody could watch at least the first 60 minutes of this game, of uh, England's game of football. Um, then when we came back, there was a bit where there are 10 trumpets all together and I had to send them five on one side of the organ and five on the other side of the organ. And with 45 <laughs> seconds to go, I had nine of the 10 trumpets. It was like herding kittens. I just, where is number 10? Are they going to, the door swung open and he appeared with 35 seconds yeah. to go. And I'm stood there trying to look calm, trying to, you know. I'm sure, yeah. And you, oh God, it, it, it makes you realise, yeah, you're dealing with people a lot. You know, it's not just trumpets uh you're dealing with human beings um which means you know you you went on talking about dealing with human beings music director of opera factory for three years and then from there music director for seven years of opera north and principal conductor of english national uh, english northern philharmonia um before you go i suppose in inverted commas back home in 97 back to english national opera as music director um a long time spent in opera, and it's one of my later questions talking about the percentages between opera and symphonic music. Mm. Um, during this time, I mean, uh, when you agreed to come on the podcast, I secretly, um, being really geeky, went yes because it means I've now got I've now interviewed every single music director of English National Opera from 1979 to the present day. Um, but <laughs> we we know that uh, I know that I've spoken to all of the others that it's a bit of a political hot potato sort of thing, uh, English National Opera. And so having worked at Opera Factory and then Opera North and then going back to ENO, we're not trained as politicians to do with funding and money and directors and all of that sort of stuff. How did you find that working your, you know, from 87 to 2005, basically always being the boss of an opera company? How did you find the balance between making music and being involved in the politics of the whole thing? It's a fantastic question, Mike. It's yeah. a very, very good question. I think uh, you can't imagine more difference between Opera North and English National Opera, even mm. though Opera North was kind of spawned as a, as a kind of, you know, a child of, of <laughs> ENO by Lord Howard back in the day when it started off. Opera North was a very, it's a very compact company. It's a touring company as well as a performance. Yeah. It's uh, a fantastic sense of collegiate. Uh, it's a it's a great group of people all, all spending all the time together you know the people in the offices when you've got to the break in a rehearsal or the end of a rehearsal you went upstairs everybody in the offices knew exactly how the rehearsal had gone because they kept an ear to the tannoy or they'd been downstairs to watch or you know everybody it was very very homegrown it was very closely knit mm. also the orchestra had a very it was a fascinating experience, really, in England, because I think it's probably the only orchestra that played regularly a big opera season and on tour and had a fully functioning role as a symphony orchestra in, in across the, the north of England. You know, of course, many opera companies have orchestras that do concerts, but Opera North, the, the English Northern Philharmonia, we did 30 dates a season. Mm. We programmed 30 dates a season which I conducted a few. 
a big concert season in the Leeds Town Hall, a big concert season in Manchester, a big concert season in Nottingham. You know, it was it was really fantastic for the musicians that they all they had a this double life, which is of course quite normal in Germany. Happens a little bit in France, happens in some other places, but in England hardly at all. And it was it it, it gave them. This, this sort of double identity gave, it was a really wonderful thing to see, you know, that they played their opera with the kind of exactitude and the, and the, and the discipline with which they needed to, to have on the concert platform. But they also played on the concert platform with the experience of playing dramatically in a theatrical sense. You know, they, when yes. they played their Mozart symphonies, they knew immediately without having to read about it or learn about it, that, you know, what this character or that character or the other character in these phrases was, because they play the same phrases in the opera house. So yeah, yeah. the comedy, the tragedy, the pathos, all of the things that are there in all of our orchestral schools, symphonic schools are all there for them, you know, because of their experience in the, in the opera pit. And uh, Mahler symphony even, you know, Mahler, the great opera, composer who never was, you know, mm. he spent his life conducting these things, six or seven, six titles a week, you know, for weeks and weeks on end. His experience yeah. of the opera scores and, you know, the opera repertoire is enormous. So when he wrote his symphonies, you feel that sense of, of the opera house in, the, in, 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 the, in every bar, I think. Yes. And when the English the Philharmonia played Marlott symphonies, we, it was that feeling. But to go back to your question, um, I was very young. It was my first big job as a music director. The orchestra were very kind to me. They, they teased me relentlessly sometimes. I remember Chris Bradley, who's one of the great percussion players of the, in, in the country, but he was one of our percussionists. He'd, uh, he'd stop me in the middle of a rehearsal and he'd say, um, Paul, um, could you just let me know where that where you're starting the Rallentando? Uh, because I just need to write it in my score. And I'd be very flustered. I'd be thinking, Rallentando? What Rallentando? What are you talking about? There's no Rallentando here. So I'd say, um, uh, I, I, I'm not doing a Rallentando. He said, oh, OK. <laughs> and in that little tiny exchange, you, you learnt a lifetime of, of stuff there. You thought, right. And stick to the tempo. <laughs> he came to a concert I did. The, he came to a concert I did the festival a few years after I'd left Leeds, and he came to the concert. And he came round after. He said, "Paul, hmm, oh, yeah, the rhythm's much better now. Very good." <laughs> <laughs> so English National Opera, yeah, it's completely different kettle of fish. A completely different set of of challenges. <laughs> The first weeks I was there, almost like the, I think uh, the day after my first first night, we lost our general director. Hmm. A few days after, a couple of weeks after, the government decided that they would merge the two opera companies together. <laughs> it's past, past history now, but it was yeah, at yeah. the time, it was the most painful thing to, to have to deal with. And, I was there kind of, I'm trying to be a conductor and trying to be an artistic director, but suddenly turned into a politician. And, you know, I was late for rehearsals because I was sitting in a, in a meeting in the House of Commons with the, you know, with the guys who were trying to sort this out. I mean, we fought 
very hard against that. I was, I was conducting a performance of From the House of the Dead the night that this announcement had been made. And while I was finishing off the performance, I was still conducting. And, you know, I'm sure you know this, you know, you, when you know a piece or when, you're, when it's going reasonably well, you've got room in your head to think about other things or they come, in, come into your mind, you know. Mm. I thought, I've got to say something. I've got to do something. What am I going to do? And I went on stage with a bow and I stopped the whole thing and I, I made a speech, which probably very unwisely, but it, it turned out to be one of the, I suppose, a defining moment in my life. We, on that night, I started this little campaign and we appealed actually to our audiences. Mm. I said, you know, look, if there's only one opera house in London, think how many people there are here and at Covent Garden sitting enjoying these performances we're giving who won't be able to get a ticket anymore. Mm. Mm. And then this developed over several weeks and months. You know, we made speech after speech after speech. Not only me, but a lot of my colleagues joined in as well. It was fantastic. But it was, it was a little... I suppose it was a very little moment now, but it was such a major moment at the time for me. Mm. As I say, quite life-defining for me. And also, I won't say we won the day because it wasn't about that. It was about gen a gradual negotiation, but we it was it was sorted out. And of yeah. course, the two companies are there to this day. Yes. But as a conductor, you realise that you know, it's very sexy having to go running off to talk to a politician or go and address a committee of the House of Commons or whatever, you know, or to make interviews endlessly about the situation. But the music goes out of the window. Yeah. And it yeah. became really, really difficult, mm. you know. And, the, and, the, and having got past that first obstacle, it didn't really stop because there was a sense that all the time that, you know, we have to do something about the, the provision of opera. We, we have to do something about the amount of money that's being spent on it. It was endlessly from then on for the next five, six years, having to answer these questions or having to fight these battles, you know. Mm. And it's... There have been conductors much greater than me who've been able to be, you know, in intendants in Germany or uh, really fight big political battles or be figureheads not on the musical side, you know, at the same time as conducting. But it, it can be very, very wearing. Uh, I mean, I'm going to come on to that percentage in a minute, but what's interesting is uh, you talked about the, in being an intendant in Germany, you know, both Jack Van Steen and Kirill Karabitz worked in Weimar and both said, you know, it was about 75% meetings and 25% music making. And they didn't stay there very long. Mm. Uh, and I think you're right. I think some conductors seem to be able to cope, enjoy possibly that mixture of, of bureaucracy uh, and music making. Whereas others go into it a little bit blind about how much is, uh, and others go into it and just happen to fall into bad circumstances like you did. I know Sean said much the same, you know, uh, that uh, about, you know, that you know, within minutes of her starting there, there was this all this thing about the, the finances. Uh, and, you know, it, it, and how you live through that and how it impacts on your career. Um, so my next question written on my crib sheet here, and all my listeners know that I do my homework, is actually uh, I've written a circle with the word time in it and an exclamation mark. You know, if you look at your earlier on early career, you were probably conducting in opera houses far more percentage of a year than you were doing symphony. But now, you know, you've 
you've had a stint um, as principal conductor of Western Australian Symphony Orchestra, and uh, now you're with the Real Philharmonia de Galicia, and also with the Orchestra Nacional, Orchestra Nacional Bordeaux Aquitaine. Um, mm -hmm. So now there's probably a lot more of your time is spent symphonically, and I'm assuming you you still dip your toes in an opera production once a year or twice a year. Well, um, or do you? <laughs> it's a good point. Yeah. But you know, when when I was at the opera. Uh, in Leeds, uh, I was conducting a lot of symphonic repertoire because, yes. we, as I said, we had the, the orchestra was on the concert platform as much as it was in the pit. Mm. And when I was in London, my contract actually allowed me to be away for, I think, a quarter of the year of the performing season, you know, mm. to do other things. And I was conducting, again, slightly more abroad and sometimes in, in, in the UK, uh, symphonic stuff. But, yeah, it was it was move towards opera you're right mm. now i probably do four or five productions of opera a year huh. um around the place whether it be in the states or you know in, um, in europe depending just recently i was in zurich and i was in santa fe and places like that so those th th that kind of press doesn't come back to to england so much but um yeah, it's running a symphony orchestra is a very different different game than, you know, to, to be available for, in Bordeaux, something like 12 concert programmes a year, mm. 13. In Galicia, 9 or 10. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, and it's... I, I, I love it all. You know, I, I, I still... I'm determined to do my opera as much as I do my symphony stuff. But, you know, as you say, the, the balance tips towards symphonic work, because I love, I love that, that contrast of work and the contrast of style and the time, the, the different time frames. actually. You know, when you pick up an opera and you're doing a, a new production of an opera, you pick up the score, you start work, you've got six weeks, probably, with that one score under your arm. Yes, yes. And you, you learn it and you study it and you live with it in a completely different way from when you're when you're conducting a symphonic week, you know, because there's your symphony week. It's three scores, four scores, and you've got them for four or five days. And then yeah. you put them back on the shelf and start again. Yeah. So yeah. the pace is completely different. You know, mm. the, the, the time you have with the musicians, the way the way you pace yourself and the way the musicians pace themselves is completely different. I remember talking to Barry Griffiths, who came to be the concertmaster, the, the leader at English National Opera in Mark Elder's time, but you know, I knew him very well. And I also knew him very well from all my years of trekking around, like with the RPO. I used to do a lot of work with the RPO, and he was often the leader there, you know, when, mm. when I was in my apprentice years, if you like. And he was always very close and very nice and very good to me. But I said, Barry, why, why do you want to give all that up, all those wonderful symphonies, and come and sit in a pit where no one can see you? He said, Paul, just the pleasure of the repertoire yeah. and being able to sit with a piece of music and get to know it over 10 performances rather than, you know, picking up a score, like I said, you know, for just for, for a few days and, and having to throw it, throw it back on the, on the shelf again. He said, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a treasure to be able to... You get to know, you know, Onegin or, or I don't know, Opera by Wagner, you know, just sit there with it for weeks on end. Mm. 
And I love that. I love that contrast. <laughs> Just sticking with opera a little bit further, and I'm going to lump in two or three questions in one go. You were involved with premieres, world premieres, by Michael Barclay, Benedict Mason, Mark Anthony Turnage, and probably many more. They were the first three names I wrote down on my crib sheet. Um, and I'm assuming would have been involved in the birth of those operas from the very start, maybe commissioning or asking, and therefore getting scores earlier. Um, I'm going to lump this in with a question I ask everybody, which is how you go about learning a new score. Um, do you have a system? Do you use a piano because you're a great pianist? Or do you do it in your head sitting at a desk? Are you a coloured pencils man or are you a, just a, an HB or a 3B? Um, you know, are you a scribbler or a non-scribbler? And, uh, and we could possibly lump in the other little question I was going to ask is learning symphonic music. How far out away from the, the week of work that you're doing, would you try and learn three or four scores for a symphonic program um, compared to you know the lead in time you would have with an entire opera? I know that's a massive question, but I didn't want to ask three little ones. I thought I'd ask you one big one. <laughs> well, I, I, please stop me if I, if I ramble on in the wrong way, but it, it, it kind of needs three separate replies. You know, yeah. if, you're, if you're working on a, on a creation, on a new piece, you, you do have a fantastic lead-up time. You really are living with the composer's ideas. I remember yeah. Mark Turnage, for example, you mentioned, or a piece I did uh, very recently with that. It, it doesn't really matter. Lots and lots of these, these uh, pieces. You're working, you're workshopping a little bit, you're coming back, you're having another go at the revision of the score, you're looking again. So you really, you really feel like you're you're growing up yes. with the ideas of the composer. And by the time you get to rehearsals, it's like the tip of an iceberg. You know, you've you've been constructing the iceberg together, if you like, and it's mm. it's it's a huge task. And in a way, that's a, the most satisfying way to deal with you know, for it to get inside your bloodstream, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, normally, I would say I'm, I do write quite a lot, but I write it in a... Uh, I, I really keep away from blue and red pencils <laughs> because I know what I need. I need, by the time I come to the week of performances, I need an almost clean score. And I need a red pencil for the very last things I need to just make little ticks or little tiny marks. Mm -hmm. And often I will have a score which I've written a, a lot of things in, you know, bits of history, bits of interpretation, bits of, you know, bits of analysis, bits of rubbish that I, I wanted to know about, you know, when did Berlioz, you know, write, decide he wanted to have a, you know, horns with, without valves or with valves and all that kind of thing is in my score. Mm. I put that score to the side, I use a different score in and to conduct from just because I don't want to see all that junk on the page when the orchestra's playing. You know, I think it, it, if you can see too much stuff, it kind of blocks your ears a bit. Mm. I think, you know, your ears, are, if your ears are really open, that's the best way to hear an orchestra. <laughs> I say that as an ideal, you know, how many times do I achieve that? I don't know. <laughs> that's my ideal. I used to play the piano for Schulte a lot. And, you know, he'd say, Paul, come round, I need to, I need to audition the singer, come immediately. And I'd go, you know, <laughs> hoping round to his house. Or, you know, I don't know, whatever he, he'd need me for. And 
we was in his study at the back of his house in, in uh, Hampstead. Uh, and then we chat and all his scores are there. And on his shelf, there were probably five or six copies of the same symphony and <laughs> many, many pieces like that. And his scores were covered in blue and red. You know, he often talked about his blue and red pencils. But on the desk, he'd be studying a score. It would be a clean score. And it would be probably the seventh copy of that score because he'd leave all the old blues and reds behind on the shelf and start afresh with every score. It's a very important idea mm. that. I, I was really taken by that discipline, you know, and that, that sense of having to really start again, keep it fresh, keep your ears open. Mm. Um, yeah, I can't remember. What, what was the other question you asked me? Uh, Lead-in time uh, to do with... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for instance, I, I try and, if possible start looking and marking my scores up for a symphonic programs six, six, nine, 12 months in advance. And then I'll come back to it again later and then come back to it just before the week. But I mean, other people do it in other ways. How do you do it? I think with experience, I've discovered I know much less than I think I know about scores. And it's, I find it much harder to come back to scores that I think I know and I need more time with the hoary old pieces that have been, you know, you've done for many years. Mm. I've I, I just mentioned I'm conducting the Symphonie Fantastique next week. Mm. My score has got the date in it from when I first started doing it in 1988. <laughs> you know, that's 33. I've been conducting this bloody, and it's, it's, you know, I do it once every two or three years, probably, yeah. on average. Yeah. <laughs> And I've got a lot of information in there and it's a lot of information in my head. And it scares me, you know, that, to think that, you know, on the first day of rehearsal, I feel like a beginner again. Mm-hmm. You know, and I really, with the years, I have to spend much, much more time really preparing. Because the more you know, the less you know, isn't it? I think, mm-hmm. yeah. you, know, you think you know a piece. I remember when I started, if I was confident or if I, you know, I felt on top of myself, I'd oh yes, I can do this, oh yes, you know, I can get through this, I'm a good, I can read the music very well, I can show them what I want, and, you know, you're just touching the skating on the surface, you know, the more you know, Mm. the more you know, the less you know. Paul, it is that time of the podcast where I go to the 10 questions. And we start, as always, with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Well, a sound that I've always loved is the sound of the grit and the gravel and the ground under your feet when you're walking on the fells or in the hills or in the country, wherever, you know, by a river, I don't know, just the sound of, of that sound under your feet when you're, when you're walking away. It's, it reminds me of many, many, many wonderful days spent walking like that. I love that. I love losing myself in the countryside. I love, especially when I'm working actually as well, to get time to go out and disappear for hours, not just around the block as it were, but, you know, really disappear as far away from work as possible. And, just try and empty your head and think about things. So that sound, mm. it's, it's, for me, it's like you know, a little bit of paradise, wherever you are. Mm. And what, what's the sound I hate? 
you know what? Right now, the sound I hate most is the sound of silence in places where there should be noise. Mm. The, the silence of a, of a city where the bars are closed and where people are not enjoying themselves. And of course, very particularly for us, the sound of the silence next week when we'll finish a symphony with all the cameras and all the live streaming and not a soul in the, in the, in the auditorium to, to play to. Mm. So it's a rather obtuse way to say the sound I hate most of all is silence, but, <laughs> but those particular silences that we just don't want, you know, we just dream of having those, those that noise back again one day. And, and especially, I mean, as you said, in a concert hall with no audience, but, you know, you're about to conduct Symphony Fantastique, which has got an amazing ending. The last thing I conducted before Christmas was Beethoven 7. You know, you'd never hear anything other than an eruption of joy at the end of those pieces. And to finish them in silence is just mm. bizarre. It's weird. It's horrible almost, isn't it? It's, it's, well, uh, it's, a, kind of, it's yeah. a kind of dystopia that we've got, we're getting more and more used to because I, I, I'm very lucky in my work. I've, I've had pretty well since last May, June, when that first lockdown finished, I've been able with my two orchestras to, to have pretty well weekly concerts and performances going on. We've been playing like that with no audience or with almost nobody in the hall for, for weeks and weeks and months on end now. Mm. I'm, as I say, I feel so lucky, and my musicians in these orchestras feel so lucky and privileged to be able to play together and to make the music. But that, you know, that triangle, if you like, between the creator, you know, the composer and the performers and the public, mm. you know, that, that sort of triangle of, of which is very, very strong when it's functioning well. And you take we've taken one side off the triangle and it's just... If, you, if someone had said that a year ago, this is what you're going to be doing in a year, you know, playing weeks and months like that, it'd be, it would be unbearable to contemplate. And yet here we are with a kind of new reality. Mm. I just hope, hope, hope it goes away soon. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, this might sound very lazy, but I adore binge watching in these days. It's a new pursuit. It's not something I ever had time for, but right now I'm binge watching Better Call Saul, which is the prequel to Breaking Bad, and mm. I'm loving it. And then I'll binge watch a bit of some films that I haven't been have been able to see for years. I just love that. Yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm binge watching. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant answer. Um, now the next two questions always cause a little bit of consternation in some way or other. Um, you may or may not find them difficult to answer. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? That's very difficult. It's a bit like asking which is your favourite piece of music, and I, I have a kind of answer for that, because I mean it, and it happens a lot. You know, you get asked the same question. And it, my favourite music is the piece that I'm working on at the time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is, whether it's a... Overture by Offenbach or a Mahler symphony or a piece by Messi, whatever, you know, it's, yeah. that is my favourite piece of music. And take everything else away. But conductors, well, again, I, 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 I listen to, I, I must say, I listen to a lot of people's work. 
And I really enjoy that. I never want to listen to their work when they're conducting a piece which I'm just about to conduct. I, I never want to hear other people's interpretations for mm. weeks before I conduct it myself. But but if you go back months before that, I'm I'm a real kind of junkie for, for listening to as many conductors as possible. And I tell you one one wonderful conductor who doesn't come up perhaps very often these days is Thomas Beecham. Mm. And very particularly, just because I was talking about him, I taught someone to listen to this, his conducting of a French opera in New York, in a concert performance, Manon by Massenet. Mm. You know, you know the images of Thomas Beecham as a rather stuffy-looking English gent with his very stentorian voice and, you know, his extremely long baton. You think, how could he do anything like conduct a French opera? The subtlety and the rubato and the delicacy and the finesse and the little tiny turns he makes with the bending the tempo and the, and the, and the colours of the orchestra. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. So he's... he's He's, if you ask me today, that, he'd be top of my list today. If it was yesterday, it was probably Hanoncore. And the <laughs> day before, it was probably, you know, something from... Funnily enough, I was, I'll, I'll say this, almost never Toscanini. I admire and I'm in awe of Toscanini all the time. You know, his preparation, his sense of the music that he was conducting, his understanding and so on. His interpretations and the sound he got, I don't really enjoy. <laughs> it's a rather fun. strange dichotomy that, but, That's, yeah. you know, I, I love his, his, his thinking, his work, his, 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 his you know, his, 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 the intensity of what he does. Well, but, you know, very good answers. Um, Beecham hasn't come up, Be Beecham hasn't come up very often, um, and I think he should have done. Um, I've seen videos of him conducting things, you know, French opera or um, Guna music from Faust, and you just beautifully, he turns a corner so well and so, so, so with such elegance. And, um, yes, well, yes, and, and without, and, you know, he was, of course, one of the ideal conductors. He didn't have to say very much, clearly. You know, he never yeah. had to explain why he wanted to do something that's one of life's great mysteries for me as a conductor you know as uh, you can show if you if you succeed you can show where you want the rallentando or the diminuendo you can show how much you want a rallentando and how much diminuendo but you can't show them why you want those things mm. how do you communicate why you know you're a musician playing in the orchestra you you slow down yeah. you get quieter you get louder you know of course you know a great orchestra that happens in a split second and nobody knows quite how we all do it together but it happens you know and hopefully yeah. the conductor helps but understanding why we do it and i think that you know one of the it's one of the things that i i i love struggling with if you like you know that and i think you know you get better at it with age maybe you know just that mm. sense of being able to not just convey pace and tempo and color and all those things but actually meaning as well yeah it's yeah. a it's a completely imponderable and completely unquantifiable thing but i love trying to get that right 
<laughs> well, the tougher of these two questions uh, most conductors have found is uh, who would be a favourite current conductor? Which and I'm now very interested to see what, what your answer would be on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't possibly answer it, can I? <laughs> None of us could do it. Right. No, I, I know that some people have done very well on that, that question. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to be a complete fail. <laughs> I have to say that the, the, the people I admire are uh, all around us all the time, you know, and there are so many moments and so many performances and so many things from so many conductors that you immediately, you think, hey, how did he do that? Or how did she do that? That's much better than I could ever do. <laughs> and it, it happens every day for me. Mm. It happens with my assistants here. You know, I've got, I've, I'm blessed with wonderful assistants in Bordeaux. You know, I, I choose them. <laughs> Uh, and we have great relationships and they are, I, I, I expect them to be very hard and very demanding on me as much as, as helping, you know, I see, mm. and, and then I give them a chance to conduct and they will conduct something and they'll do something that you're trying to do and they're young and they're just starting out and they do it and you think, damn it, that's <laughs> a talent. How do they do that? So, you know, on that, in that moment, that's my favourite conductor of the moment. You know, <laughs> it's a very good answer. It's a very good answer. Um, <laughs> They're all you, around us all the time. Yes, they are. They are. You're you're very right. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Well, it's uh, that's a complex question, and I could answer it from various angles. Um, mm. What I think I can do quite well is organise my head around complex scores. I don't know. Mm. Maybe that's just the training. You know. And I remember doing an interview once saying, you know, actually conducting a, a new piece by Bert Russell is, is rather easier than conducting an opera by Verdi because, you know, you're, you're, you're doing it for the first time. You can sort out the complexities of everybody there. You, I enjoy sorting out complexities, strange temper relationships, metronome marks that have to all match up. So those, those kind of things I, I don't find too difficult huge challenge massive time cons consumption but in the end i don't find them difficult the things i find difficult are the things that are probably the simplest and should be easy don giovanni by mozart you know, i've done four productions uh the first time i did it i enjoyed myself i had the best time i felt like as i was on top of the world it was going like a dream the second time i started to question myself things the third time pretty well for me a disaster didn't enjoy any of it you know the fourth time vaguely seeing my way through but you know that became that kind of great classical piece which you know you just have to keep trying to find a way to do you know mm -hmm. and then another answer would be very quickly sorry to, to to go on but you know I remember when I did Lulu the bear opera for the first time it was an English National Opera, it was a new production. There were the six weeks or seven weeks we had to prepare it. I, I thought I knew it. I thought I understood it, you know. I'd known it for years. I'd been to productions at Covent Garden and thought, I'm going to do this one day. And I knew the music very well, I thought. And then when you start to try to conduct it, to find the way to put all of those skeins of, of 
texture together and balance all those things together in the orchestra and at the same time remember that you're only accompanying singers because it's not a big symphony it's not a it's it's all about supporting singers the complexity of that job over those over that piece mm. took me i thought i was never going to get there <laughs> I, I think i did in the end we recorded it <laughs> the results are on cd um but it was one of the most difficult things I've ever, ever had to do. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I dream of being able to make good coffee wherever I go. I love coffee. We have very good coffee grinders and makers at home. And in some places I managed to get them sorted out. And luckily, when I'm with the orchestras I know, uh, and I come back to regularly, I have that all set up. I desperately need to have good coffee. And you know, you know the wonderful espresso, those wonderful hexagonal, are they hexagonal um, espresso makers that you put on a stove? Oh, yes, yes, you know, yes. They, they yes. call your espresso, Bialetti or whatever they yes, call yeah. the Italian ones. That's great when you've got a stove, but of course in most hotel rooms there's no such thing. And my wife found me an electric version of that. Only oh. the electric, the electric part is just the, to heat the water up underneath, but it makes the coffee in a perfect way. And I use that often, as often as I can when I'm going somewhere I don't know. And we take it on holiday too. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. So that's it. Yeah, a, co a Bialetti coffee maker in electric. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I'd probably change my own brain. <laughs> because... I'd like to get, I'd like to find the bit that overcomplicates things uh, and, and get it kind of, have a rebore of that, you know, have it, have it, have it revised. I don't know, you know, the number of times when you, you just wish you could just do what some conductors do, do so easily and so beautifully, they immediately start rehearsing and they, the orchestra feels comfortable and everybody's working along and the music is as fluent as you want it to be you know and sometimes you turn up on a monday morning and that happens mm. on other time on other occasions the following weeks maybe even the same piece you know you start and it's it's not in your hand it's not in your head in the same way even though you probably know it better mm. and you cannot get that so that's a completely bizarre answer but i'd, I'd love to discover the bit of my conducting that can't just go immediately like the people I admire, you know, who can just immediately just turn on the fluency and the fluidity and, and start. <laughs> That's a brilliant answer. Absolutely wonderful answer. Uh, and like the whole of these 10 questions, you'd never, ever hear the same answers. It's wonderful. Um, unless you want to become an airline pilot, which will be a very common answer to number nine. What profession other than your <laughs> own would you like to attempt? Well, I don't want to become an airline pilot because it's not much work going at the moment. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> um, and I don't want to be worthy, so I'm not going to say I can get, easily become a, a you know, social worker or a health worker because I, I know I don't have anything like the talent for that. Hmm. i tell you one thing that has fascinated me for years and all my life, actually, is architecture. Hmm. And 
I'm forever fiddling around in, in my house trying to work out how to improve this or change that or, or rebuild that. Or that. I would love to study architecture just as a, from the ground up to be, you know, <laughs> sorry for the pun, but you know, That's to, a very to, good to, pun. Learn, to learn how to, how to build and, you know, just the nuts and bolts <laughs> of how to, how to build and how to design. Mm. I would, that, that would, that would give me such pleasure if I had, you know, if I had another 50 years, I'd like to have a go at that. <laughs> well, I'm nodding away. The audience can't see that, but I'm nodding away because this is quickly becoming, like airline pilot, a rather more common answer than I thought. It's my choice. Oh, really? That's that's what I would have. I would love to do. Oh. At least two or three others would would be exactly the same. But they wanted to would have gone into architecture. Uh, I wonder whether it's because we're you know we're we're obsessed with large structures of things, but also the minutiae of how those large structures are built. Um, you know, metaphor for yeah. what we do when we learn a score or a big opera or a big symphony. Um, I just I just want to progress from being a DIY numpty complete failure at DIY you know no, no I've always been fascinated by by buildings and how they go together and what makes one building speak to you and another one not so I suppose maybe it is a little bit like music isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. and the final question if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink well I've been very lucky in my life with my symphony orchestras to be set up in places very near the sea mm -hmm. on the west coast of various countries perth in australia the west australian symphony orchestras and on the west coast and has the most amazing sunsets on the over the sea same in galicia mm -hmm. and the same in bordeaux actually if you just go you know half an hour down the road and they all have the most wonderful wine just sitting in vineyards just behind <laughs> if you go inland a little bit uh so i can't go to all of those places can i so i'm gonna i'm gonna say i want to be eating fresh seafood from galicia it's going to have some razor clams and it's going to have some well there are many many different things but not oysters actually but every imaginable crustacean you can imagine is there Mm. Uh, cooked straight the minute it comes out of the sea and I'll, I'll bring the wine actually from Australia I'll bring a white a nice cold white wine which should be a Chardonnay from one of the great vineyards from Margaret River mm. West Australia mm. from Vas Felix in, 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 in Margaret River some of the most delicious white wines in the world I think and that's just behind Perth so that that I think with a, a nice sunset and and a, a beautiful beautiful evening with a with the sea you know stretched out in front of you I think that would be a that'd be a pretty good way to be ready for the end of the world mm. well I, I always know when I agree with one of my guests choices of final meal because my stomach starts rumbling which it just did so <laughs> It, I, I, yeah, I, if you if you don't mind, I'll come and join you. That sounds absolutely wonderful. And talking of uh, wonderful um, and joining you, I hope in the future that we can uh, sit down over a glass of something and and have another chat. It's been really wonderful to talk to you, Paul. I've loved every minute, and I hope to see you soon. Well, thanks very much, Mike, for inviting me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. 
A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a conductor who grew up in Argentina, but then went on to study in the US, where, since 2012, he has been the music director of the Camellia Symphony Orchestra in Sacramento. We talk about his guest conducting across the globe and his other talent as a prize-winning composer. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>